Good morning, church. Can y'all hear me okay? All right. I'm sorry if I jingle. I, I wear my keys on my side. I, I end up with a key ring about the size of a janitor's when I'm at the ministry, and sometimes I forget to not do that other places. <clears throat> I want to say how happy I am to be here with you this morning. I don't know if you know this, but 10 years ago, um, when my wife and I decided to move out here to work with this ministry, um, we didn't know where the money was going to come from to do that. And uh, I wrote a whole bunch of churches, and the first real conversation that I had with someone who called me was with Roger Williams. And we sat there, and we talked on the phone, and he told me, he said, well, we'll meet and see where that goes. And did you know Chenal Valley Church was the first church to decide to support my family to be here? So you hold a very special place in my heart. I thank you for making it possible for me to begin a, a journey that's lasted 10 years and I, I hope will continue to last for quite a while. I was trying to decide how to talk to you about what I do. And so I thought I would start with talking about the need a little bit and then talk about some questions I'm normally asked when people find out what I do. Maybe there's some things that you're wondering yourself and maybe you'll help. Um, there are a lot of homeless people in the United States. There's nearly 600,000 of them, as a matter of fact. If you look at um, these circles down here, you can see how many of those uh, there are shelter beds for and what percentage don't have shelter beds. Uh, and that's by each one of these groups. You may look up here and be surprised to see the conditions that some of the people are in when they're on the streets. I know a lot of times we hear about homeless vets on the street. That number may surprise you. You may be surprised to see how many people and families are on the street. Um, just in North Little Rock, where I live, you'd be surprised to know how many children there are who are living in a vehicle with their parents who are going to school every day, and most people have no idea. But more specifically, if you want to know what it looks like in the state of Arkansas, here's a little bit of information about that. And these numbers were updated in 2019, and let me tell you, when the pandemic hit, these numbers really changed. I don't know the numbers. I've seen the way the numbers are counted, and let, let me tell you, they're not a true reflection of it because I've helped gather the numbers in the places where we've been stuck to take those numbers. And I see over 100 people a day, and that day, eight people came through the area where I was. That's not an accurate representation. But these numbers have really grown since the pandemic hit. But in 2019, in the state of Arkansas, there were 2,740 people counted at those types of counts like I was talking about. That's a lot for a state our size. And the majority of them are in the greater Little Rock area. So we have a big need even in our little state. And I feel like people who are on the streets have a special place in Jesus' heart because he knew what it was like to have no place. From the second that he came into this world, there was no place for him. Even at the height of his ministry, he said, even animals have more of a place than I do, right? I go on about that the rest of the day, but I won't. I get asked a lot of times, though, number one, how do people end up in this spot in the first place? 
then people might ask questions like, why should I try to rescue people from their own bad choices? So I want to talk about kind of both of those things a little bit, because I think there's a lot of things that contribute to where people are. Now, there's no one answer that's going to cover everybody, because none of us come from any group that is completely the same across the board. In this building, there are people with all kinds of different backgrounds, right? So if I tried to sum up what brought people to Chenal Valley Church, I couldn't give you an answer that included everybody, right? So understand this, but this is about the best answer that I can give you for that. But I want to start in Scripture and, and show you that God already had this in mind before the problem developed in our area, okay? In uh, Matthew 12, verses 15 through 17, it says, Jesus withdrew from that place, a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him, and this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant who I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So I want to talk about these two images that are brought up here and talk to you about how I see them in the day-to-day -day, uh, work that I have. So the first one is the bruised reed. Have you ever walked through a reedy area in the middle of summer when it's really dry and as you go through there, I don't know if you do things like this, but maybe it's the destructive child in me. I'll, I'll snap those things. Sometimes I'll take the little reed and I'll put it between my teeth like for some reason all kids thought farmers did. I don't know. Um, but if you've ever snapped one of those and it doesn't completely break, have you ever tried to stand it back up? Two things, one of two things tends to happen. Either it falls right back over, or sometimes when you try to bend it back, it breaks, right? Well, the scripture here says that Jesus, in his approach to bringing justice, he does not break these bruised reeds. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk to you about is some of how people end up on the streets is because of brokenness. This other image, which I'll visit a little bit later, I want you to think about a smoldering wick. Have you ever blown out a candle or watched as the wind has started to blow out a candle and you see how there's still that little bit of red, kind of like an ember at the end of the wick, and smoke keeps flowing even though you've blown it out? This is when people are just barely hanging on to hope, to faith, to life, to the idea of a future. And I think that also is part of what leads people to the situations that they're in. And I think both of these things have a big effect on the decisions that people make that we might look at and say that was a very poor choice, that made no logical sense, I want you to see how these two things might contribute to those situations. So first, the idea of a bruised reed. Anybody in here never experienced stress? Okay, so we've got common ground we can talk about here, right? 
There are different types of stress. I don't have to tell you that. You figured that out by now. But the types of stress I want to point out here have to do with how they either tear you down or help you build the resilience that is going to get you through difficult things in your life. So the first type is positive stress, and that sounds ridiculous. So let me explain what it means. These are the type of stresses I would call a challenge. They may make you nervous. Your, your heart might race, right? You have mild elevations of the stress hormones in your body because your body is saying, okay, prepare yourself, right? So you think about, anybody have test anxiety? Anybody go to start a new job and have worries about that? Changes in your life circumstances. I got two kids who were in college and when they moved out, I was stressed for them and what that was going to look like, right? Lots of things in our lives cause us temporary, mild stress. And I believe if we can face those challenges with faith, what that can do is help build us to become stronger people. And sometimes that looks like this. That was challenging, but I did it, and now I know I'm stronger than I thought I was in the past, right? Then there's tolerable stress. Now, we've just raised the level a bit here, okay? So, serious, temporary stress responses buffered by supportive relationships. Sometimes you face incredibly difficult things in your life. The loss of a job that causes a loss of income that puts you in a place where you don't know what you're going to do to move forward in your future. Maybe you survived a, um, oh goodness, my vocabulary just left me, a natural disaster, right? You made it through it, but that has caused some damage, some stress in your life that sticks with you, right? When we go through incredibly difficult things that are longer lasting than the other things that we we're talking about, that may be more traumatic, if we have a support system, what happens is we usually bounce back from those things. Now, this is what builds what we call resilience. And in psychological studies, they tell you this is the difference between someone whose life crumbles and they never quite make it back, and people whose lives turn out to be extraordinary in some sense because those difficult things have awoken something inside of them they never knew was there. If you read books about prisoners of war and the way that they've survived that and the way that they look at life after that, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Those are incredible stressors, right, that could have broken the majority of people. And somehow they come out heroes that look at the world in completely different ways. Then there's toxic now, you could argue that some of those things that I mentioned are toxic there, but here's what toxic stress, the, the difference is. So these are prolonged activations of stress responses in the absence of a protective relationship. I want, to think of, want you to think about when people are in recovery and they're coming out of recovery. You know, some of the first questions that they ask before people leave to go back to their homes is, do you have a support system, right? Because on the other side of hardship, we need people to help us get through it. Because without that, when I reach my limits, if I don't have someone to kind of pull off of, 
either God and my faith or support of people around me, I can have a very difficult time recovering from those hardships. As a matter of fact, when these things happen early in life, they can have some devastating effects. So if you look at the bottom of this period as conception and the top being towards the end of your life, here's the way these things happen. So adverse childhood experiences, bad things that happen to you as a child that tend to be on the toxic side of this scale can disrupt your social, emotional, and cognitive development, right? Which can lead you then to adopting behaviors that are not good for your health, right? Sometimes when you only see bad examples of that, guess what you learn? Bad practices, right? Those things lead to disease, disability, and social problems, And with these adverse childhood experiences, and I'll explain what some of those are in just a second, people people who experienced four or more of them as a child, four more types of them, tend to die 20 years earlier than people who haven't. So when when I talk about these adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, we're talking about household challenges like Domestic violence, maybe you're not hurt as a child yourself, but you see your parents harming each other. When you see substance abuse in the home, you're raised with that all around you. When, when you have mental illness, especially untreated, that the, that the children are grown up in the middle of. When parents divorce or are separated, that can be traumatic for a child. And if a parent is incarcerated, growing up with a parent who's, who's in prison, can cause harmful effects on the child, right? Those are kind of things that are usually not super intentional that happen around a child, but then there are things that there's a little bit more intention to. Neglect, whether it's emotional or physical neglect, that child not being cared for properly. That's another type of adverse childhood experience we're talking about. And then there's abuse, whether it's emotional, physical, or sexual. Now, when you start to see a child having a bunch of these, you can understand why I would say as they go through life, it affects them pretty negatively, even if those things stop. The damage is done, right? And when I say that some of these things are done intentionally to a child, I I think of what Jesus said about harming a child, right? In Mark 9, 42, he says, "'If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble,' It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And I don't think that Jesus is talking exclusively about children when he says this. When people experience the type of hardships we just talked about, a lot of times what happens is called arrested development. Mentally, they stop developing at that traumatic point. They may physically grow up, their circumstances may become more adult, but a big part of them has never grown past that childhood stage. And I think one of the reasons it upsets Jesus so much is because, not just because of the way it affects a person's faith, but it affects their whole way of processing information. Trust is a very difficult thing for people who have experienced prolonged continual stress, and it actually affects your brain structure as you develop. 
Have you, have you heard the idea of, of a lizard brain before? So these brain structures that you have, there's the parts of your brain that just handle things like instinct and that fight or flight mechanism, right? They control the hormones that cause you to go through that. And some core memories, not core memories as in necessarily I remember certain events, but, you know, my body holds on to, or my mind holds on to things that are dangerous to me. I may not even be conscious of those things, but there's a part of my brain that helps me avoid things that might put me into a place of danger. So if you've ever thought, I just don't trust people who, whatever, maybe the way they look, maybe the way they dress, maybe something about them, a lot of times that goes back to somewhere in your past, something happened in your brain that we're avoiding that doesn't have to make sense. It's that primitive part of your brain saying, not going there again. You don't make the most rational decisions when you're in fight or flight. Your brain will actually draw power from the other structures for this. Because your brain's number one job, it believes, is to protect you. Not to make the most logical decisions, to keep you safe. When people are in prolonged stress, their brains stay activated in this place, okay? Sometimes bad choices come from the brokenness because you are not in a place where you can think about the future. And I mean that very literally. Your planning, your dreaming, your emotional development happens in the prefrontal cortex. And people who have more of these stressors have underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes because so much energy is caught in the how do I survive. It means I have problems in my relationships. It means I have problems with my planning. It usually means I, I have some pretty bleak aspects to my future. All those things affect, affect how we build trust. Now, if I tell you that I've spent 10 years working with the homeless, if I tell you part of my master's degree I worked in this study of ACEs, in a low-stress situation, that might cause you to give me some trust. You think, okay, he's got some experience there, maybe he's competent, maybe I should believe some of this is true. And then there's other factors. Probably the way that I look, the way that I talk, um, what you've heard about me, those things also affect whether or not you believe me. Some of it might be the mood you're in today, right? Those are included in the other factors there. But you can see in low stress, 80 to 85% of why you do or don't believe me would be because you're going, huh, does his experience or competency say he should know something about this? Now think about the people in prolonged stress, how they tend to decide this. 50% of it comes from are you listening, caring, and empathetic? Really, it boils down to, are you a threat to me? Or are you a safe person? Honesty and openness. Let me tell you, whether you're working with children or working in high-stress environments, these people have very strong baloney detectors. If you are disingenuous, they pick up on it very quickly. And that plays a, a significant role in, in trust there. Company and experience went from 80 to 85% down to 15 to 20%. And then 15 to 20% is all of those other things. Think about where that puts us as Christians. 
we're doing a good job of the things that Jesus taught us, half the battle in building trust is already won, right? Are we listening? Are we caring? Are we compassionate? So there's the bruised reeds that Jesus is careful not to break because he realizes what a fragile situation those people are in. And a lot of times that brokenness results in difficulties making good choices or looking at the long-term effects of choices which can put people in a place where they have very little, they don't have the places to turn to, and that's part of why they don't handle that stress so well. They can land someone at our doorstep at River City Ministry, not having the resources that they need, not knowing what their future is going to look like in need of help. Jesus is very careful not to break people who are in broken situations. The smoldering wicks from how I've seen often happens from a catastrophic loss of community. Remember those support systems I was talking about being so, so important? When you don't have them, here's the type of things it leads to. Isolation. I don't have anybody, right? Low self-esteem. I don't have anybody because I don't deserve anybody in my life. Hopelessness. If I don't have that, what's the point, right? Depression. Well, that's the obvious result of hopelessness, right? And staying in that fight-or-flight mode means I can have continual anxiety about tomorrow. So, what do we do? Let's take an example from Jesus. When Jesus was dealing with people who had very little hope, he started with the basics. Jesus fed people. When Jesus looked at the multitude and saw that they were hungry, what did he do? He fed the people. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've seen that pyramid before, right? Physiological needs are the basic needs that people want before they're going to really be able to think about much more. If I'm starving, if I can't breathe, if I'm thirsty, it's very hard to listen to what you have to say. If I'm sleep-deprived, if I'm naked, all those things are going to affect how able I am to hear what you want to say to me, right? That makes sense. So one of the things that we do, we feed people. Breakfast and lunch, we see about 200, 250 people a day for meals. Um, we try to clothe people. We have a very small area for clothing, but we try to keep that so that people can be clothed. We try to help them find shelter so they can have a place to sleep at night. So we try to start with people working with them where they're at if they need these things what can we do to help them get it, right? Once you have those things, you can start to think a little bit more long-term, right? How can I be safe? Uh, can I get my things into a safe space? Can I have a permanent housing situation? Can I have employment? What sort of resources beyond what I'm going to eat today can I get? Well, we try to step in there with people too, we try to let people know all the resources that are available to them. We have a medical and dental clinic and vision clinic for people to try to work with them on their health. And we try to create a safe environment so that people can come into our building and know that they're not going to be harmed. Now, before you can move into the higher levels from here, here's where we come back to trust. Okay? 
Once people have these needs taken care of, if we want to move deeper with them, we have to take the time and show the level of compassion to help people believe that we really want to move deeper with them. Now, when people have these wounds, if they're going to grow and they're going to try to heal from them, you know what psychologists have found the most important thing is? Without this, it doesn't happen. You don't move past these wounds. You don't heal from them. Is having people who will listen. Having God and another person in your life to hear you can make all the difference in whether people grow past these things or not. And you need people who will not only listen, but listen compassionately and not try to argue with what you're saying about how you've been affected by your life. It's hard because when we hear people talk about uncomfortable things, we have a, a natural response to try to make things no longer uncomfortable. So if I can fix it, guys, I'm talking especially about us, when we hear problems, we're like, oh, here's the solution, right? This type of listening isn't doing that. It's hearing and validating where people are at. And that's hard to do. It's hard not to jump to, well, at least, because I can feel a lot less uncomfortable if I can, let's, let's look on the bright side, right? Don't you know this is only happening to you so that God can fill in the blanks here, right? Don't you know that at the end of this, you're going to be so much stronger, be able to reach so many more people? I'm not saying that any of these things aren't true. I'm saying we can't shove people into that place of healing. Instead, our job is to be listening, supportive people as they grow to have those realizations. We can help them develop in their faith till they have those moments where they say, God was moving in this all along. We can't shove people past that growth process they got to get there on their own. Jesus offers an invitation to people, right? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, does that sound like a compassionate listener who can hear the problems that you've got in your life? I think so. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. Remember when we're talking about the trust factors, when people are open, right? People are open and humble. People tend to have more trust for them. And, and you will find rest for your souls. Love and belonging is possible once you build that trust. I feel like in Benji's situation, this is the biggest part of his job, is helping people build community with God, with others, and with themselves. And that can be a very difficult thing when bridges have continually been burned, when people feel like their trust has continually been betrayed. This is a really hard job. But when you can bring people into community, some amazing things can happen. We gather together for a reason, right? We need each other. We're stronger together than we are apart helping people learn to trust others in relationship, to trust God, can really open a lot of doors. We can start to see God in a different light. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. So I learned to trust God in relationship to me and where I'm at. And what does that do as we're looking at that picture 
of community so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God comforts me as I come into community. I even start to learn that there's ways I can take that comfort that God gave me and comfort you with it, right? When we talked about the way the brain was working before, when you're caught in fight or flight, you know the only thing your brain is focused on is keeping you safe. It's very me-centered at that point. I don't care about you, that's why I'm willing to fight you, if I can keep me safe. It's not until you start moving people out of that that they are capable of really looking at community. That's why Jesus starts with people with their basic needs, right? He fed people, he healed people, he called people into community. As people start to understand the way that God loves them, can start working on this self-esteem portion, respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, freedom. Do you remember that moment when you started to see through Scripture how much you matter to God? Blew my mind. I, I was raised in some ways that didn't really say that about my relationship with God, and so as I became more and more aware of them, it was life-changing for me. Benji and I sit with people and talk to people and try to help them see you are worth more than where you're at. You don't deserve a lot of the things that you're going to. And you know what? Before they come into community, you can't tell them that enough for them to actually accept it. They have to become a part of something and develop far enough in the relationship with God till that can start to sink in. And as they become a part of a community and help each other, one of the biggest ways we've seen that is through prayer groups with people gathering they start to become a person in this small community that has earned respect. They see their strengths as they're able to help other people. Here's some of those passages for me. 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Philippians 2, starting verse 12, says that children of God shine like stars in the darkness. So you come out of that darkness and you become what's shining in the darkness that's still there. Then people can start to look and say, in Christ, what can I become? You see, it takes a lot to help each other to grow. You may not be in any of the circumstances that I talked about with homelessness, but I don't know what sort of traumas you've experienced. I don't know how alone you may have felt in your life, but I do know this, when we come into community with each other and with Christ, we can rebuild that hope. We can look for a future. We can look for more. Paul prayed for this for one of the communities that he helped build. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That is what I want 
for every person who comes through our doors at River City Ministry to experience. And this morning, that's what I want for each person that's here. We can help make that possible for each other by acting like the community that God called us to be. So I encourage you to find some way today to help be that for someone that you interact with today. So keep that in mind as together we stand and we sing.